Hello and welcome, this is another edition of On the Barricades, your favorite political show on the internet, delivered to you by Eastern European lefties. I'm Boyan Stanislavski, the host of the show. Maria Chernat, the co-host of the show, is with me here. Hello, Maria. Hello. And we say hi again to Mark Sliboda, who's an international security analyst, and uh, he also is a senior lecturer at uh, the Moscow State University. We invited him to discuss the uh, security uh, arrangements or security situation in Europe and globally, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the tensions, growing tensions between uh, Russia and uh, the United States, and you know the question of Ukraine. And you know when we speak about Ukraine, uh, we uh, come to think about the uh, about the gas pipeline. And I want to very briefly uh, discuss this topic before we go <coughs> over to other to other things because <coughs> sorry about that. Another critical aspect of global security, particularly in Europe, is the issue of gas supplies. Uh, as we all know, prices are skyrocketing to previously unheard of heights, I think, uh, at least within my lifetime. Uh, and you won't be surprised to learn that Russia is, of course, to blame from of start course. to finish. Uh, so, yeah, the Americans were attempting to portray themselves as some sort of uh, saviors in this situation, sending some tankers loaded with gas to Europe. I'm not sure if they had actually arrived, but most of them uh, were bound to for the UK anyway. And uh, the US has admitted that it doesn't have enough gas to meet the EU's demand anyway. So, uh, like, what's the point? Uh, but some media outlets reported over the weekend that American officials were attempting to talk even to Qatar's emir uh, about supplying gas to Europe. Uh, and it's all becoming increasingly surreal to me, uh, you know, by the day. Meanwhile, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, for all I know, uh, or maybe I should say according to Russian media, this is where I read it, this is where I got my information about this from, is fully operational and basically full of gas. So, uh, but the issue is being delayed because of some bureaucratic certification process. No, it's Mark, what is it going on, really? Yeah. Okay, so Boy and Maria, thanks for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the barricades with you. Likewise, thank you. Um, so, yes, we, we are certainly in an energy crisis in Europe, and the energy crisis is caused by a few things. It's never one, one cause, right? Not, anything rarely has just one cause that you can point to. One is economies are starting to come out of the pandemic, right, um, uh, the, the coronavirus pandemic, and building up energy demand had been down and it takes while for energy producers who haven't had investment for a number of years to bring things back up uh, to capacity and beyond right that's that's a normal cycle of the economy also europe has increasingly begun to rely more or or hope more would be the better term on green energy uh, particularly wind energy that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing by any stretch of the imagination, except when you rely on it. Because, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that solar energy, you know, energy provided by wind and the sun doesn't always run, right? And when it's not running, you can't store it. We don't have the scientific, the engineering ability to store energy for a variable load on demand to su supply our you know, power cycles where we need lots of energy during the day, much less at night, uh, you know, because of the, of lights and, and uh, you know, factories and, and so on, just the way energy demand works. Uh, it was a really bad year for wind. <laughs> energy and the European states did not buy earlier in the year large amounts of gas to fill their gas storage tanks for the winter because prices were already going up quite high. Uh, you know, because of the limit, more limited supply 
and they didn't want to buy at those high prices and they hoped that they would go down and they kept going up and up and up uh come the winter um now they're saying well what you know gazprom quick give us lots of gas really quick <laughs> and prices are really high now you have to understand that there are still a number of EU countries that have long-term gas contracts with Gazprom. They Those demands are all being completely met. Germany is one of the principal one of those. They have received all the gas according to their contract. No one has been shorted a, a single uh, cubic meter of gas. Um, every contract is being completed met. But more the EU nations had demanded the creation of a spot market where Gazprom has to sell gas to, to a market that is then bid on and market prices dominate without any contracts. That has led to the explosion in gas prices due to the shortage of demand. You're seeing prices 500% a year on increase. That is threatening to bankrupt a lot of European countries. You also have at least two European countries, not a part of the EU, Moldova and Ukraine, that are both not buying gas from Russia, but are buying Russia ga Russian gas middlemen from, from other European countries to create the domestic political talking point that they're not buying Russian gas. They're buying that at a secondary markup, of course, from the middleman, the transit costs and, and the markup and everything else. But that means that some of the contract gas that would go to Germany and other countries is instead they're diverting it to keep the regime in Kiev and a pro-Western government that was just elected in Moldova, you know, in place. Um, so this is largely self-inflicted gas crisis. It must be said that Russia sees an opportunity here and is not helping. First of all, it's a it's a a, a real winter here. It's we've got more snow than than Russia has had since World War II, and I, I'm sure you're seeing similar things in Eastern Europe. Russia does have really high domestic demand. They have a good excuse, but. They are right now refraining from buying space in the debundled pipelines to send gas to the EU spot market because they're under no comp, uh, no obligation to do so, right? Uh, they are fulfilling all of their long-term gas contracts, but they see this crisis coming over Ukraine. Um, they see the EU waging economic warfare for them on year uh, with sanctions. Um, and they see them delaying, uh, you know, trying to cancel Nord Stream 2 after everything that Russia and Germany have invested, uh, you know, to complete this project. And they're saying, we're under no obligation to to sell gas to your spot market. Good luck. Right. Okay. Uh, and yes, and just, yes, just tell I, me. I just, I just want to say here, this is a perfect explanation. And thank you so much. I would just add some elements here because Romania, since we are a poor country, is directly hit by this. And uh, the Sorry. spot market, I think, is the crux of the problem here. We decentralize the whole energetic system. And we are in the position now that, for instance, for the Romanian parliament that was built by, uh, that it's uh, usually functioning right now in 
one of the biggest buildings in Romania. They have a guy that is actually auctioning and uh, is actually buying um, from the energy market, from this energy casino, basically, that the European Union created, um, energy for that building to still function. This is the situation. Not to mention, not to mention the fact that we have schools that are unable to pay the bill. Yeah, and yeah, businesses and everything. This That's whole right. crazy idea, they had long contracts, just as you said, with Russians. Now we don't have it. And now we are still buying from Gazprom, but we are buying it how? There are two other companies that are buying from Gazprom and then reselling. And then we are buying them. <laughs> yes. Great business, great business, isn't it? It's great business, isn't it? This whole yeah, yeah. I, the very last question I want to ask Mark. Mark, are they going to shut down Nord Stream 2 if, uh, if the scenario of military intervention from the side of Russia plays itself out? Um, of course, that is what the United States and the Baltics, and, and particularly Poland and Ukraine want, right? Yeah, Poland, but they are Ukraine. hoping they're hoping that they're going to be still pushing gas. I mean, the Russians are going to be pushing gas uh, through the pipelines underneath, uh, you know, Poland and Ukraine after this kind of things happens. Yes, I mean, this yeah, there's no yes. logic to it, right? It doesn't make any sense. Europe is dependent on Russian gas. You cannot get around that fact, right? You will not have home, 40% of the gas. Even the United States is the, the second biggest sort of their imported oil is from Russia. <laughs> you know, the hypocrites is, is absolutely insane. Um, it, after um, Canada, uh, Russia is the second largest source of uh, imported oil to the United States right now. Uh, that, yes, that's crazy. It is insanely hypocritical. They didn't want long-term contracts. They didn't want the British allegedly political dependence uh, that it, uh, it entails. They hoped the spot market would help break up Gazprom. They wanted the Russian state energy company. They hoped to coerce it economically into being privatized and broken up so that then there wouldn't be this you know, threat of political leverage, even though, of course, they all have state energy majors of their own they're just consumers and producers uh but right. you know russia was not going to allow their gas to be privatized they saw this the results of it in the 90s right yeah. <laughs> it was the impoverishment of the country uh they're not going to let it yeah, happen so, the, again. so basically they they tried to wreck gazprom and they shot themselves in the food or somewhere and higher, they right? shot themselves in the process yes all right all right uh, so let's talk about the media now maria please off to you well the problem that i see here uh is the following i think the russia is russia is no match for the united states in terms of propaganda that Absolutely is common not. sense i would say now what is the danger here um in ukraine i think there is a growing uh, number of people sincerely wanting to join nato and the european union and also uh, Russia spoke of um, NATO military bases uh, being taken out of Romania. Now, what do you do when you have a population that wants those military bases here? We have a growing number of people wanting NATO here, and they are enthusiastically about it. And enthusiastic because, about yes, being the target of Russian missiles. Yes. That's very... <laughs> 
oh, but they believe that uh, that is nothing because Russia is so poor and weak and we are going to invade uh, Russia. Which is, by the way, very strange. Like, Russia is weak and stupid and, and like, country basically on the verge of falling apart, but at the same time, they are able to meddle in the political process of all other powerful countries in the world, in Europe and North America. We call that Russophrenia. Exactly. But what do you do? Because these people are honest. And let us assume that these demands of the Russian government are met. And the NATO military bases are gone, and they um, manage to somehow impose a pro Russian leader in Kiev. What do you do with this population that is so convinced? that uh, their place is uh, in the European Union and uh, in NATO. What do you do? You suppress them because military can get you so far. You win. You win in two hours. I mean, no, Ukraine or Romania, come on, they are a joke. I think the Russians would win uh, here in two days. But what happens next? Because people are so colonized by Western propaganda. Yeah, I, uh, People are. Um, and, and the Western media and the entire NGO complex as a soft power weapon are incredibly powerful, incredibly well-funded. Any action that you may take against them, as I'm sure you've seen, is simply a, a for the sake of it, rear guard action. <laughs> you know, uh, there, there, there is no hope. Um, doesn't mean it shouldn't fight. It just means there's no hope. And Romania... I, I can't speak to Romania except to say that Romania is not going to leave NATO uh, and there's there's absolutely no hope there. I, I will speak to Ukraine because, you know, uh, there is still political contest in there and I have direct experience. My wife is Crimean. Um, my in-laws live in Simferopol and we have family all over East Ukraine. Uh, in 2008, when NATO made their declaration that Ukraine would join, 20% of the Ukrainian population wanted their country to join NATO. Now, as a result of the Maidan and the civil conflict in East Ukraine, which Russia has been a proxy part of, just like the U.S. and others have been, but we now have a result where it cycles in the last few years somewhere between 45 and 55% of the Ukrainian population want to join NATO. It is fairly close to a majority. However, that is, of course, minus the 2 million people in Crimea, who will never be factored into that decision again. And minus and a million Ukrainians in Russia, right? Yeah, that is a political cost of bringing the Crimea into Russia to Ukraine. But it also includes the 5 to 6 million Ukrainians who are in Donbass. They are excluded from those numbers. And it also excludes the approximately 3 million Ukrainian refugees oh, that reside million. in Russia who fled to the aggressor, uh, you know, because of their regime shelling uh, the Donbass. If the Donbass and those refugees are returned to Ukraine, that number goes back to 50% again. That's half the country. And what do you do with half a country that wants to join NATO in the West and half the country that doesn't? Because that is still the, the condition. You have a divided country again that has to domestically balance itself and geopolitically balance itself between East and West. That is why this whole Maidan has been such a catastrophe 
economically, socially, politically, militarily, you know, in all terms uh, for Ukraine. Now, let's say that Russia does intervene, does go to the extreme option and puts a uh, a, a pro-Russian government from, you know, the Donbass, you know, or elsewhere in East Ukraine uh, into Kiev, just like was what was done with the Maidan in reverse. Um, then the result will be civil war still in Ukraine. Um, I don't know. Uh, I would really hope that because when you move east to west, the opinion changes. There would not be much resistance comparatively in eastern Ukraine to this. However, west Ukraine would be 90 some percent plus against. It, there's the option of just saying west Ukraine, NATO, have it. <laughs> we, we can't do anything with it. That would not ameliorate all of the resistance, of course. It would still be graduated. But... Uh, it would, uh, you know, prevent a, a, you know, the forcing of a military occupation of a 90% hostile population. Um, an Eastern Ukrainian government in Kiev would be seen no less hostily than Russian occupation forces on every street. They would be regarded as the same. And there will, whatever happens, the civil war in Ukraine will continue. Because that balance has been upset. And the only possible way back is the Minsk Accords and federalization of the country with a guarantee of neutrality. Um, but that's not going to happen because the West won't let it. That is what Russia wants. Russia doesn't hope to get Ukraine into their sphere of influence. They hope to return it to neutrality. But that is no longer acceptable to the U.S., and the U.S. would rather see Ukraine burn than surrender it to a neutral gray, you know, state border buffer zone uh, in Europe again. Whatever the opinion, I mean, the, the national identity conception and the politics of the peace, people of East Ukraine are an unfortunate reality for the West that they have just ignored, right? As far as they're concerned, as far as the Western media is concerned, the people in the they have no agency. They're just pro-Russian puppets, right? They're not real people. They're not people dying under artillery shells for the last eight years, <laughs> huddling in their basements. They are just pro-Russian bots that need to be repressed, need to be silenced. There, there yeah, is. Which, no by the way, by the way, I just want to say that same applies to journalists uh, who are trying to have uh, to, to demonstrate some kind of opinion which deviates from the yeah. uh, dominating narrative. Like we are not journalists; we are not people who have opinions and thoughts and, and we ideas. We are and assets. Yeah, we are just assets. We are paid for this. Like you know, you can't you can't think course. independently. Vladimir and, and Putin is coming here to Dragomirej yeah, Dale yeah. every night with a bag of rubles. If you deny people political agency and dehumanize them in that regard, then you don't have to consider that they have human rights, political rights that need to be taken into account. You don't realize this because of the sleight of hand with the Western media and propaganda machine where they are the champions of everything that is democratic and free and wholesome and anyone who's against them is, you know, the incarnate of evil. But they're, they always, uh, you know, in the end, win that war regardless of the actual facts on the ground. If Russia, you know, uh, puts a, an Eastern Ukrainian government, there will still be this civil war. It will still be happening, except it will be largely in the west of the country instead of the east. Now, this is something that I, 
and other people like Putin's uh, advisor Glaziev argued should have been the case and should have been done and would have been far easier seven years ago <laughs> when the Yanukovych government was first, uh, you know, overthrown with 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 open U.S. backing. But they hoped it would collapse in the time in between. They didn't. And we're coming back to 2014 again, except mm. that the regime in Kiev is much more powerful, much more entrenched politically, has a much more competent military. And um, Russia, you know, has essentially lost the last seven years. And so have the majority of the people of Ukraine, unfortunately. But to me, it's very weird. Why is Ukraine so important to, to NATO? You said that they would prefer to see Ukraine burned and handed over to a neutral state. Why is that? It seems so weird. Okay, well, I mean, you, you see that NATO is focused on geopolitical consolidation of Europe. Because with that military political geoconsolidation, all of Europe is essentially politically unified. Its elites go through the same institutions, the same basic programming, and Europe is kept in suzerainty to U.S. global hegemony. In fact, they become its biggest and most vocal champions. And you saw this when Trump was president. And he tried to say, eh, I'm not interested in U.S. hegemony. I'm just interested in U.S. first. <laughs> And the Western European leaders were horrified. They wanted their hegemon back. And they cheered when Joe Biden brought it back in proper form. Whether that meant sanctioning Germany and, and Turkey for stepping out of line, uh, you know, overdoing so business. So it's just some kind of masochistic submission in geopolitical it is, terms. It is, it is because they have their own ideology of Western exceptionalism that now dovetails in with U.S. exceptionalism, where they see them as they see themselves as providing the moral backbone to U.S. military global right. hegemony, and they think that they serve an important role in that of keeping the U.S. along a certain path, and the world would be better off with with the West dictating how things are done everywhere in the world. Um, never mind, you know, the costs along the way of coming to that future dystopia. Yeah, this is a very, uh, very bleak uh, perspective. Now, coming back to Zelensky, uh, he's in a tough position, I would say. Tough, it's uh, mildly, to put it mildly. Because if he tries to speak with Putin and with the Russians, then he faces a powerful backlash from the right-wingers in a his third, own country. Yeah. And... If he doesn't, then he's also in a terrible position because he might see his country engage in a major military confrontation. So what what would be the best option for him? If there is any. If there yeah. is any, of course. I, I, I don't think Zelensky is a good guy and I don't have much sympathy for him. And I, I kind of warned about the position he would find himself. He is a hostage of the regime he inherited. He can either give up the regime and return Ukraine effectively in time to a pre-2014 status quo division internally of the country, east and west, or he can see it burn. Or I guess the hope is 
that Russia will just disappear. <laughs> and that's magical uh, thinking. Okay, magical thinking, um, <laughs> or give up, or somehow two percent Navalny will become president of Russia and change everything. You know, uh, rather than the communists or LDPR, which would be much more hardline than a Putin government. <laughs> um, yeah, he he is in a tough situation, and there are no good answers for him. But at this point, he's just a hostage of the regime and he's being carried along with it. I mean, I, what do you think when you see during his end of the year presidential speech, the New Year speech, he was awarding a member of right sector. He's a, a, a person of Jewish descent awarding a member of right sector, a hero of Ukraine medal. Is 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 that in, insane? Uh, or yeah, that's grotesque where, and, and and dark and, yes, and I don't know. Really, it, it, it is and, really Orwellian. And the uh, the uh, chief of general staff of the Ukrainian military took Dmitry Yurosh, the founder of the right sector, as his paid military advisor. Why? Because there are so many members of the right sector and their sympathy sympathizers that have infiltrated the military as volunteer as part of the volunteer uh, troops at this point that he needs to have them on board. <laughs> that is really depressing. That shows you how a very a, and a small right five to ten percent ideologically driven far-right minority can come to completely dominate a country's politics because of their passion and their willingness to commit violence. Hmm. And for the fact that they have a vision, they have they a do. vision that, that, that is so seductive and was so seductive and they managed to impose it because uh, the Maidan started, I think, as some sort of legitimate uh, uh, protest. People were not satisfied because how can you be satisfied, especially in Eastern Europe when you have so much corruption, poverty and all the rest uh, and no alternative. And then um, when there is this group with a very powerful vision, they kept hostage the, the whole country. But I want to ask, uh, are there maybe any other forces that might pose a threat? I mean, some other forces in Ukraine that could be more reliable politically and more rational, some sort of descendants of Yanukovych and all the other leaders that despite everything we might uh, say about them, managed to keep things uh, balanced and to keep the country together. No. Um, there that are, was a short answer. Okay. Yeah, um, first of all, you have to remember, I mean, behind all the politicians of Ukraine are still the oligarchs. That has not changed. Behind Zelensky, there is Kolomoisky. He is now in an effective political war with Akhmetov, another oligarch who had supported the Maidan, but has um, fallen out with Zelensky and is more on the side with Poroshenko. There is still dueling oligarchs, and there's the Eastern uh, oligarchs, Medvedchuk and, and, and the others. Um, you know, there is still this, the dueling oligarchs. And, and at the end of the day, which politicians they fund. But all the options right now are more radical or divisive. Zelensky might have been the best hope for someone who would restore someone outside of the political process, an Eastern Ukrainian Jew from Dnipropetrovsk who would was not 
a Maidan radical, but was generally accepting of the results of the Maidan, who might be able to come to some type of peace, agree to the Minsk Accords, uh, and politically reconcile with the Donbass. But he became a hostage of events and the regime that he inherited, and he probably was the best hope if you believe in hope. I don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that's pretty bleak because, you know, for the last part, because we are approaching the end of the second segment, I would have asked you to think of some sort of brighter future, an exercise of imagination. I mean, what would you do or how is your vision of a brighter future? Mine, to give you an example, maybe understand better what I um, mean by this question, is to have a world dominated by feminists, feminist allies with no secret services, with no military, and uh, first and foremost, without uh, companies uh, producing weapons. That would be my, my utopia, so to speak, or my brighter future. What would yours be? Okay. Uh, unfortunately, I'm a fatalist and a cynic and a realist, even more than I am a, a leftist. I, I, I consider myself a post-Marxist in, in a very different vein than Western post-Marxism. But um, at the end of the day, all these geopolitical games are, of course, incredibly important, but with the looming reality of climate change, um, and the problem with liberal democracies in meeting the challenge of climate change as hostage to capitalism as they are. And how seductive, how unwilling people are to give up their, their consumption, their, 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 you know, little pleasures, their, their, um, you know, material comforts. My idea of the best future outcome is a green authoritarian global state that would unfortunately um, destroy the entire world in the creation of it because of what would resist it. Uh, but um, that was very dialectical. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I still do. I still have that remnant of, of, right. of, of the leftism left. Um, uh, so it, it is, again, a hope that I don't hope for, um, but it would be a hope if there was hope. <laughs> All right. So let me be the most boring person here. I'm a classical Marxist. OK, so I, I really hope for uh, international scientific socialist uh, order uh, triumphing one day. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe there's a chance for us to discuss those <laughs> futurist projects that we have in our minds and hearts. But anyway, we're left with what is on the ground. Thank you very much, uh, Mark Sloboda, for all uh, your for all of your insightful comments and, and uh, <clears throat> the perspective you provided. Uh, thank you, Maria, for being with us. And thank you to uh, our viewers and listeners. Please support the barricade to the extent that you feel uh, you can afford. You can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the barricade. We also would like to invite you to visit our substack, thebarricade.substack.com, where you can uh, subscribe to our email so you don't miss out on any of our publications. Uh, thank you so much. We'll uh, see you in uh, one week time. Keep fighting and stay healthy. Thanks for having me.